Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 162 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today has been one of the biggest movie stars in Hollywood for the past decade. A dashing young man who became world famous for playing the vampire Edward Cullen in all five installments of the Twilight franchise, and now is generating widespread acclaim for his acting chops as well, thanks to his career-best performance in the crime thriller Good Time, which opens on August 11th. Robert Pattinson. The 31-year-old Brit started appearing in films in his teens, with an early break being a supporting part in two installments of the Harry Potter franchise. Shortly thereafter, when he wound up being cast by Catherine Hardwick opposite Kristen Stewart in the first Twilight, which came out in 2008, his life changed in a major way. Pattinson was catapulted onto Hollywood's A-list, which came with fame and fortune, but also a loss of privacy and certain preconceptions about what he wanted or was capable of doing as an actor. In between the Twilight films, the last of which was released in late 2012, Pattinson also acted in others, including 2010's Remember Me, 2011's Water for Elephants, and 2012's Belle Ami. But it was the first thing that he did after the Twilight chapter of his life came to an end that made people really sit up and begin regarding him as more than just another pretty face. Namely, playing the lead in David Cronenberg's Cosmopolis, also released in 2012, followed in 2014 by key parts in two films that premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, Cronenberg's Map to the Stars and David Michaud's The Rover. Since then, he's appeared in Werner Herzog's Queen of the Desert in 2015, James Gray's The Lost City of Z in 2016, and most recently, Josh and Benny Softy's Good Time, which also premiered at Cannes, where it was greeted by a six-minute standing ovation, and where Pattinson reportedly came very close to being awarded the jury's Best Actor Prize. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Pattinson and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how a young person who was discouraged by his school's drama teacher from even pursuing acting wound up a professional actor in the first place, what his life was like during the years he spent in the business prior to Twilight, and how he ultimately wound up in that film, which he understood to be an indie, what it was like to suddenly become not only world famous, but also preyed upon, in a sense, by a certain segment of the Twihard fan base, and how his relationship at the time with co-star Kristen Stewart may have contributed to that, how being associated with the Twilight franchise impacted other opportunities, and how he has shed the notion that some had of him as merely a brooding hunk through the Cronenberg collaborations and, perhaps most of all, through Good Time, plus much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you for joining us, Rob. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. We always just begin every episode with basic question. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in a place called Barnes in London and southwest London, just outside of central London. Well, now I guess it's probably classified as central London. Right. right. <laughs> and your folks? Uh, my dad did a number of things, but was a car dealer. My mom worked with him, and then she was a, a booker at a model agency before that. So from what I was reading, just going back, to the even the Harry Potter days, just interviews and things that I could find. It seems like actually music was the passion before acting. Is that right? Yeah, and then I was uh, I would do I was doing a lot of gigs and stuff right up until until Twilight, really. really? Like maybe up until a few months before it came out, and yeah, and all of my friends were doing it. You have an instrument, or you're a vocalist, or what was it? 
I spent piano, guitar, and singing. Yeah. I mean, like, but everybody was doing it in London at the time. It was when there was a sort of new folk yeah. revival. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you're actually, people can hear some of it on, on the Twilight soundtrack, right? I yeah, think yeah. the first one, at least, right? Yeah, it's still quite, I can't really believe that. <laughs> that, <laughs> that yeah, it was kind of an act. I was, I was still doing open mics whilst I was shooting Twilight. And that's how the director found out about that. The, found out that you were that you were able to sing. Yeah, yeah. So there was a there was a bar right next to the hotel we were staying, and I played like twice a week, like the whole way through shooting. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, before we even get to to that, let's let's also cover some other stuff that went on before. How about modeling? You were twelve. How did that enter the picture? Is it just through? Is your family business, or what was the what was the way in? Yeah, kind of. Like my mom knew some people. Well, actually, no, she didn't know anyone who was part of it. She just kind of said I was pretty tall. When I was a kid and I was doing a, a paper route at a time, <laughs> my mom was like, you should go and go and try and do this. I mean, I, I used to also work for like a catering company and worked at uh, whose house? It was someone's house. <laughs> I was like kind of cleaning up or something and someone said, oh, you should do this thing. And then I went in with my mom to an agency and then they were just like, tons of pretty girls everywhere and everyone took you seriously and it was like oh i should do this instead of doing a paper yeah out. i would think so but then, but then never got any jobs like ever well, i got like four jobs and then ten thousand castings and four jobs <laughs> <laughs> so what was it that that led to you getting involved with i guess it started out with sort of amateur theater in southwest london particularly though i'm curious because it sounds like from from one of these things that i read you were actually discouraged from pursuing creative stuff by your own school's drama teacher. So that that's a weird thing for that person to have done. So how did this all go down that you wind up in a in an amateur theater program? I mean, I I wanted to do drama and yeah, my teacher told me not to do it. And so like, I didn't end up doing it, ended up doing like, What kind of a teacher says that? I know. That's I know. She told me not to do art either, which also I wanted to do. And I went to a pretty arty school, which yeah. is kind of weird. <laughs> um, like, and uh, yeah, she's like, yeah, you shouldn't be doing this. But then... Uh, <laughs> that sounds terrible my dad found my dad was at a restaurant and there were a bunch of <laughs> pretty girls <laughs> over the thing. and he asked them where they'd been and he, they said we go to this amateur drama company this is the and Barnes like, Theatre Company Barnes Theatre Company and, my, and he said yeah you should go and, go and join <laughs> he this he was looking month. out for you he had your back yeah That's yeah it. so you, you go off there you start auditioning and getting into shows and then how did you I guess while you were there, what happened that led to you getting an agent for the first time? I think it's basically the first part I played. Right. And just by total coincidence, the the person who who ran the company, his daughter was best friends with my still agent in London. And so he said to her to come down. I was probably 15, maybe. What were you performing? Our town, Thornton Wilder. The, and I'd only got the part because it was an under-18s theater company and all of the tall people went to university and I was literally the only one tall enough to make it look normal. <laughs> which part, so which part were you playing? I'm trying to, George, George. It could yeah, be, George it sounds was, yeah, I think, no, I'm I think just trying George. to picture this. So, uh, so you, did you know when you went out, whatever you were doing that day, that there was somebody out there watching or did you find no, out I, later? I had no idea, yeah. And, I, and this, I, I was still at that time really hadn't, I was not thinking about doing it. I, I enjoyed it and I, I really liked being in the, in the world of, sort of theater and mm. stuff but i was mainly just working backstage doing like sound effects and stuff and i was just, i was a stagehand 
So and what were you thinking sort of, and not that you have to know your whole future in, in high school, but I mean, what, are, what was sort of on the, on the radar as possible things you might do? I don't, not, nothing. Yeah. I mean, I really, yeah, I wasn't really thinking anything. I mean, I kind of, I don't know, nothing. Well, I'll, know. I'll ask you one thing, which I, I, I think you recently revealed, which was that you're not necessarily the most well-behaved kid in, in that time of your life, right? That was uh, younger. Oh, that was a better. Oh, that you was younger. Young? Yeah, no, I was like eleven. So what, was okay, 11. so you got to tell me because I mean, this was hilarious. That I'm sure not at the time, but it's so funny. It's like a story. I've kind of I can't, I can't believe people that. need new uh, new I know, stuff. I know, so. I, literally, I know. I literally I run out of stories right. after a while. No, this is great. But I mean, so what? You you uh, you saw some magazines you liked. <laughs> I mean, it's, I I was I guess I was a slight kleptomaniac for a period of like <laughs> nine to eleven. Yeah, just one of those things because I was quite a well-behaved kid. I mean, to kind of try and find opportunities to Rebel. be bad, yeah, yeah. yeah, and like, and that was yeah, stealing, stealing porno magazines. So, but it wasn't like it wasn't <laughs> like and none. Of, we were all like little children, and like no one knew. It wasn't just like oh, so you there weren't was, there weren't like major consequences when you got busted or what? No, it's major consequence. Yeah, it was bad. Like <laughs> it was like I went to a very very strict school at the time, right. and it was kind of it was like up until thirteen or whatever. It was right. it was it was pretty sort of academic school. And everyone, you know, would go to the same, they would have the same path that you go into like the certain university or whatever. And then because of that, I ended up going to a kind of much more liberal school afterwards and a completely different. So it changed. It did have a. Yeah, I know. It's great. <laughs> okay. So you get the agent, as we were saying earlier, through our town. What resulted from that? Is there just a bunch of auditions or, or how, what changed? I mean, my first audition was for Troy. Really? I get to play uh Garrett Headland's part. Okay. I'm friends with now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just remember that getting the call because I still didn't know what. I, I had literally no idea what uh, acting was <laughs> or anything. And then it suddenly became very real that I oh, go to this room and it's to play Brad Pitt's cousin. Right. And I was just like, what? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, like, where do you even begin? Yeah. yeah. And then went in and like, and I, but I'd done a bunch of modeling castings before and like modeling casting is incredibly demoralizing in a lot of ways i mean you line up for like two hours and then people don't even look they look at your book and oh, then just be like no and, and i've done hundreds of those before right. and so i've been doing the first ever acting audition you're in there for an hour and like you actually feel like you're kind of you know, there's, there's a process and it's kind of it's interesting right. and you know especially when you first start and you're young like casting directors really want to see if you've got anything so they really work with you and i just thought it was amazing that afterwards and, and, and just it's a completely a really life-changing audition so what was the what was the first one that actually panned out vanity fair with mira and i uh, and we mira just had reese on this past week and and oh, really? so what but what sounds like you get the part that's a big deal mm -hmm. but then what they clipped it from the movie yeah, <laughs> it was the end scene as well. It was playing Reese's son, estranged son, mm -hmm. and it was supposed to be the end. It was this big kind of final sad moment. Right. I went, I did that, and also one of my best friends, Tom Sturridge, was the other right, son. Right. I mean, it was both of our first parts. Right. We went to school together. We were in adjacent scenes, and then we went to the screening, and no one had told me that I was cut oh, out. Geez. And so we saw his scene, and we're like, yeah, pretty good. <laughs> and then it gets to my one, and it's just well, like, oh, you're not there. <laughs> you would you would meet Reese again in another movie yeah, yeah. that we will come to. Not as son and, and mother. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. Hollywood. So, all right, at 17, though, it sounds like that was the first big one, right? You, get, you go out, and, I, and you get Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, and then I guess come back in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix two years later, the part of Cedric Diggory. Mm-hmm. Did that feel like a huge break at the time? 
Yeah, I mean, well, I'd done this other movie called The Ring of the Nibelungs, which also came out a, a, a million different titles all over <laughs> the world. But I'd done, I went straight from Vanity Fair into The Ring. Just like that, that to be honest, was the most mind blowing experience because it was kind of being, I think I just turned 17 and going to spend three months in Cape Town, like to shoot this thing. I was still just like, what is going on with them? Like, how, how is this happening? Yeah. And it was just amazing. Like the entire experience was amazing. I'd somehow managed to convince my mom that I didn't need a, a, a guardian. guardian. <laughs> so I was literally, I think I, I maybe was 16 when I got it. Really? The and so I was just in Cape Town by myself in my own apartment. And like, I was like, oh, this is, this is the life, the life. for me. Yeah. <laughs> now was being, on those sets and and seeing the impact of being in a big franchise on the people who were leading that one, what what impression did that leave on you? I mean, in Harry Potter, it was very. I, I always, I mean, I really realized. I mean, they're, they're also very nice kids. Well, they're not kids anymore, but yeah. they, at the time, even yeah. they were they were lovely, mm-hmm. and it was very protected. I mean, the set because most of that stuff was within the studio, was in Leaveson Studios. And they'd had the same people working there for the, the same crew and everything. It was quite a specific environment and a lot of kids and they had to go to school. And, and I was probably one of the oldest young people there. And I could see that it was kind of, however they did it and within Harry Potter, they really, really did it right. Yeah. And that's why all the all of them have ended up pretty, pretty good people yeah, afterwards. Yeah. So what's strange to me is that you've said that in i guess in the years between that first of the harry potters that you were in and then the first of the twilights it was actually pretty lean as far as work for you there wasn't like a harry potter bounce well kind of i mean i got i got my american representation from harry potter and there was a kind of moment where it sort of seemed like you know it's like a bunch of stuff going on and then yeah it just didn't nothing <laughs> really yeah, i mean yeah. but then i went back to england i did just kind of just interesting things. And then I, I can't remember even the exact order of things, but I remember I did this, this a TV show on BBC Three where I was playing a World War II pilot with PTSD and stuff. And I just kind of, it, it felt like a kind of, it's like, oh, you're like doing a part. Right, and yeah, and it kind of, and it, and then that, that was sort of started to change things in my head. And then I played, I did like a, a comedy thing with Catherine Tate, who's an English comedian. Uh, and that was kind of fun. And then I played young Salvador Dali, which uh, that was just another like completely crazy experience. And doing, you know, you kind of, especially if you haven't really decided if you're if you're if you're going to act or not. I and mean, then suddenly you're doing things where it's like you're seeing where your line of comfort is. And also, I just it was the first time as well. I'd really researched a part mm-hmm. doing that, and it's sort of. I mean, I met a bunch of people who knew Dali and it just it, it, things started like falling yeah. into place. And, and, and so by that point, you're now becoming more convinced that this is what you want to pursue. Yeah. But like it's still not entirely. I was still 100 percent doing music at the time. And everyone I knew was getting signed at the time as well, like who I'd started playing gigs with. But the music industry just seemed so precarious to yeah. me. So I'm just I was a little bit. And also I was getting jobs. I was was like kind of getting little jobs, but like I was every single time I would just about to be saying I'm done with this and I'd get another one. So like it was just lucky. As I understand it, this agent that you mentioned before, I think Stephanie Ritz Mm -hmm. says, come to LA, we've got an audition for some romantic comedy. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was doing tapes all the time. I'd be sending hundreds and hundreds of tapes all the time. Okay. So it wasn't, this was, but did this not actually involve you coming to Los Angeles? Well, yeah. Well, I, I sent the tape. 
and I I used to do tapes with with Tom Sturridge. Like, okay, um, we tape each other, yeah. and he would always play the girl. We would we play the girl for each other. We'd always be <laughs> auditioning for the same thing, right. and get really really into it. We'd lived in the same apartment together, and we'd do like these hundreds and hundreds of auditions. <laughs> And we do it, and we didn't even have like a digital camera. It was like one of like a mini, what are they, like a Sony yeah, Handycam, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is yeah, literally yeah. from the early 90s. And then send, send the tape, and then WME had to edit them up afterwards. <laughs> like, Make them earn their, yeah. their money, yeah. But I did this one tape, and I was like, this is the one, this is going to do it. And Stephanie and the producer were saying, like, yeah, you've got it. It's basically, it's on a plate. You just need to come and meet everybody. And this was a romantic comedy. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, it was a romantic, yeah, it's a romantic comedy. And then went in to do that. And also, I was. I knew that I wasn't good at auditioning and like, and I just got this crazy anxiety build up and would ruin it every time. And I, uh, went in to do this audition and just completely flaked. And like, <laughs> it was just, it was terrible. And I could feel it as soon as I walked in the room, it was just like, nah, this isn't going to all the way to LA. And it was like, I was, yeah. it was, a, it was like spent 700 pounds on the flight and everything. And I was like sleeping on Stephanie's couch and yeah. And I walked in and just as soon as I did, it, I was like, that's never going to happen. <laughs> and, so what do you do? You go back to her place and... Yeah, well, I remember I called my parents afterwards. I was like, oh, I'm done with this. And like my parents were just being like, so yeah, well, you know, just don't do it then if it's making you so upset. Yeah. And I was like, don't, don't tell me what to do. You're going to decide. Yeah, you have to do the opposite. Right. And then, yeah, I mean, the, the Twilight audition was the next day, maybe. But so. this was not something that you even knew about when you came to L.A. It was just like, oh, by the way, you're here. Might as well. It actually was. And this was okay. like kind of how little I talked to Catherine. I don't understand how it had really. I talked to her when I was in London, but I'd come out for something else. And uh, I hadn't even really remembered the conversation. And I was supposed to have read the book and all this stuff, but I'd, I'd specifically come out for something else. And you hadn't read the book. No, I hadn't done it. <laughs> and uh, and. Because I was so certain. I was right. like, the other one was on a flip. That right. was like, that was it. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then, so yeah, I went to do that uh, audition. So your agent says, as long as you're here and sh- and Catherine, you might go yeah. do your audition. And, yeah, and she was like, you know, Catherine just got this house in Venice. And it's like, you're just going to be like, <laughs> chilling out. Just probably going to make you smoke weed. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> and, like, and meanwhile, at least they were reporting that she's seen thousands and thousands of people. I mean, is that... True, five thousand people. I mean, I, I was the last person they saw, like on the last day. And I don't, I genuinely have no idea how, because I yeah. only, I talked to her, and I remember talking to her on the phone, and I just, as she called me up, and it was like three a.m. in London, and I was just like, and I hadn't, still hadn't read the yeah, book even yeah. then, and then she was like, she was like, so how do you see the character? I was like, oh man, he's just like <laughs> sex machine, and I just, I was, just, I didn't even understand what the conversation right, was. Right. Well, I mean, just to further contextualize here, you've said at one of these other profiles that. The year prior to that audition, I guess, you're, you're living, as you say, with Tom Sturridge in, quote, a cool little ex-crack den, close quote, and that you said I spent the prior year drunk and basically just not in the best of places, right? So you come here. What actually and what happened at that first of, I guess, two auditions? What went on at her house? I mean, it was just weird. Just one of those things where you kind of once – it's once you have super high expectations of the of the previous one, and then that's just taken away from you. Then I had zero expectations of right. the other one, so I went in completely. I'd also taken if you listen to how it sounded, yes. I was taking a Valium for the first time in my life, so it's probably why I didn't have now, any. Now that was because you were nervous, or you just felt like yeah. Why not? Well, I mean, because I I felt super comfortable about it, and then as soon as like I was literally just about to get into a taxi, and then the same crippling anxiety happened and I was like calling up Stephanie just having a panic attack in her apartment going I can't go I can't go I can't go and she's like oh just take this thing yeah. <laughs> and I just remember like driving the cab well that'll, that'll have you 
more than brooding uh, <laughs> for that part. Yeah, and it was just kind of, but it also just made you kind of think you you don't have to just form like you can go there and just listen yeah and i'd never thought about that. i yeah. just thought it was like i thought every single time he did something it was like prove prove everything all at once right. and just going in there and i was like oh hey and i also could i was so so messed up i couldn't even find a house i was like <laughs> half an hour late pre-uber <laughs> pre-uber in those days yeah but what did she want out of you when you were there did she want you to read the script or act the scene or what were you actually doing to earn the part yeah i mean it was just like we did like four different scenes and also, I was very serious about that stuff. Like, I mean, I kind of, I wanted to, I didn't see it as a as a popcorn movie or whatever. I mean, yeah. even if it's written as that, like, I still want to approach it the same way. So I was asking tons of questions and blah, blah, blah. Well, plus the original was basically approached not unlike an indie movie, right? Yeah, that's what I thought it was. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd, seen, I'd seen 13 before and yeah. I really liked 13. Yeah. And I just, I thought that was what it was. Like, right. I mean, and I, I hadn't read the book and I'd only seen the sides. And right. so I was like, well... I assume that's, you know, you make it like 13. Right. I don't know. <laughs> like, so that, that first time you, it's, I guess, you, her, Kristen Stewart, then there's a second audition, a final no, we, audition? No, no, we just did that, and then I just met the producers after. There was just one audition, and then... They were it, not as sold on you as she was, right? No, no one was. I mean, it's <laughs> kind of... Well, they all thought I looked really old. Like, <laughs> and I was kind of, I was pretty chubby at the time, too. Had you just not shaved, or what was it? Yeah, well, I mean... Yeah, it was kind of associated with the with the probably two or three years of just basically yeah, just, drinking. Just, just drink, just drink, <laughs> drinking, drinking, right. play, playing music all the time. Yeah, it wasn't. I remember at the end of the audition, they had to do. We went in Catherine's garden, and she was like, you know, all the other guys, he's supposed to be so chiseled, he's an Adonis, so you want to see what your body looks like. Right. And I was literally just like, oh, geez. I'm not gonna do it. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I just realized I was, I was the only guy who didn't do it. Oh my gosh! And like, so of, so she went to bat for you. That that's how you got past the skeptical producers. Yeah, I mean, well, I did. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually got on pretty well with the producers after yeah. this, but like, I kind of, yeah, I went to do another meeting a week later and just tried to shave about ten times, and, like, and look then, a little younger. Yeah, yeah. shave my chest. As yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you when you found out you got it, and did you realize that this in that moment was potentially going to majorly change your your life? I was still at Stephanie's, and then uh, I kind of knew I was going to get. I also sent Catherine a letter and kind of. I could feel, you sort of feel it. I didn't know what the kind of consequence were, but I knew it was a sequel. I knew I knew there was three of them. I knew there was something that was going to happen. And also, I just like got a job. I always felt you know it's always amazing. I mean, I only ever got like still to this day, I only ever get a maximum of like two jobs a year. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, two, so there was two good days. <laughs> <laughs> but there's not anyone at that point who's saying for any reason because of celebrity that might come with her things that like, nobody was advising against taking it. No. You couldn't even get the books, and I, I, I had to order the books off off Amazon, which was just the books right, at the time. Right. Like, I mean, it's like you couldn't. I remember looking around everywhere, and like, no, no one had heard of it. Like, no one believes me, but like, no one had heard of it. There was one person, a, a waitress I knew who knew it, but it was very, it was culty. Like, so it blew up only as a result of the movie, or or ha- like because the books obviously themselves became huge. But you're saying that was when did that start? About. Six months before the movie came really? out, and you could really feel like suddenly it was growing and growing, and wow. then, and then by the time the movie came out, it was everywhere. From what I've read, they had you address the they got you trainer, right? So you could you could be comfortable with your shirt off or whatever. That was one thing that you did to prep. What else could you do to prep? How do you now that you I assume eventually you read the book? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else though? I mean, you're approaching it. It's a big probably clearly already even before the movie opened. It was a uh, it was maybe your biggest 
job. Yeah. What could you do to get ready? It was my first American job as well. And that kind of, that is, it just felt like a big yeah. thing. Like yeah. doing, I mean, I went, I went super early to, which is the only thing I really realized how to do and just be by myself in Portland for like, I think I went about two months before even I was supposed to come for yeah. pre-production and I was just there forever. There was no yeah. one even there. It was just the stunt team. Right. Like, I know, so I'd hang out with them and just kind of obsess over things and and just kind of just think, okay, the, my only idea was if you put in, if you're just here longer and invest more time than everyone else when they come, then you'll hopefully feel at least an equal. Like, well, what other. was the most intimidating aspect of it? Just doing it, just like being self-defeating. Like, I mean, just kind of getting over, as always, I just experienced it too many times and yeah. I thought, okay, this is like the big show. Right. Like you just can't, you can't mess it up. And in terms of just one other thing pre-release of the movie was that you've said, and I think this was another one of these recent things that people didn't realize, that you almost didn't make it to the to the final cut. I mean, you were, it was not resonating with, I guess, the producers again, or what was the issue? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's because I'd done, I had a really satisfying experience on the thing playing Dali, and I was very argumentative with like, <laughs> on the thing and before, and I would like say, I thought that if you need, if you are supposed to be playing a character, you should make yourself believe, you should be the only one who, sh you should know the most yeah. about the character, and like, and you should be an authority on it. And if someone, and you should defend it as well. And I thought that was a good thing. <laughs> well, so what was the different? What was the difference of opinion? I mean, I I kept wanting. The main thing was I kept wanting to push to say the logic of the story and the characters means that like you know if you if you touch someone and you want to kill them after it's like you should probably avoid touching them. Mm -hmm. And also I was really obsessed with you know that kind of the longing becomes a painful thing. And I just I, I thought that was what the story was supposed to be about. So I didn't want. I thought we should never touch each other. We should try and, you know, and it should, it's a painful thing to be around each other. And I thought I'd never really seen that in a teen right. romance thing. And like, and I, that is essentially what the story is. Like, so their issue is they want a guy who's a little bit more upbeat. Yeah, well, just like accessible. Because, like, yeah. you know, it kind of, you know, a lot of people just want to see people be happy together. Right, right. Especially if it's a relationship sure. happening. But I mean, I think it kind of ended up being a sort of a nice compromise between yeah. the two. So the weekend this this opens you're you're 22 years old what do you remember of that weekend and how quickly i guess and, and in what ways did did things change when people saw this movie i remember doing comic-con which was crazy but nothing my life didn't change at all i was still living in the oakwood apartments and yeah. in burbank <laughs> and like it was just funny went there and right. have everybody screaming I and mean, then you just go back and it was just exactly the same there was right. no, no paparazzi or anything and then we did this whole press tour and like and i just kept i hadn't understood that you know i'd go to you'd go to the we did this hot topic press tour in like malls around america mm -hmm. and there's this like total madness and it's on like local news and blah blah, blah. then i just go back and it was gone and so it's like oh well so it's just when you do these events that's it it's not actually your life right and then when the premiere happened it was genuinely the only time I, the first time i'd really realized that i'd made a film <laughs> like and it's sort of and i was sitting there and just yeah, up until that point it was just all a laugh mm -hmm. like and it's like you're just kind of saying stupid things and in the and in, in press events and right. stuff and just i just want to make it fun for myself right. and then you suddenly notice it and it's the first time you actually saw yourself and it's like oh i actually did something right. like and it was very frightening and i, I left immediately i left the next day back to england <laughs> but what was frightening was not seeing yourself it was what the reaction of other people was, seeing you yeah it was the reaction in the audience and it's kind of like 
because I'd seen a few other movies that I'd done and it's like you just watch them like every other movie like you just watch it and you're just watching a movie right. like but at this like characters would come on screen and people would scream at the, at the theater and stuff and like there's just this like mayhem like real hysteria and you suddenly realize that this isn't I'm not in control of this at all and you suddenly realize like I'm I think you're like fuck I'm gonna become a commodity and then and and I was too young to really realize how to cope with it. there's no way to know how to cope with it and well then, so, I'll just read back to you because I thought it was an interesting quote because Remember, so for listeners, this was the first one comes out in 2008. You're probably one or two more in by 2011, which is just six years after you had been the supporting guy in the Harry Potter mm-hmm. movies. And here's in 2011 is something that Emma Watson, the star of that, mm-hmm. said about your sort of fame that had already happened mm-hmm. by 2011. She said, quote, I can't even imagine what that kind of fame must be like. So many people must wish they were in his position and think he has the best life, but actually there are prices to pay. Don't interpret that from my perspective. It's not so bad for me. I'm not in Rob's position. I don't have people screaming and crying and clawing at me. I'm so grateful for that, close quote. But, I mean, what? what, uh, (laughs) She 100% does. (laughs) She she has some, but I mean, I guess because her maybe viewer, the average Harry Potter viewer, maybe slightly younger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because let's, we should ask this. Because you're even long after Twilight, this is still a, a, a relevant topic. Who, as you saw, is the archetypal Twilight fan? The people or the obsessive, the people that gave you this nickname that I know you're not in love with, the uh, R Pats, the people who feel an emotional stake in your personal business, all of this stuff. I mean, who are these people? They are. Uh the real kind of vocal ones, I think it's a very, very, very small group. Quite educated yeah. women between the age of 28 and 60. Well, I mean, that's quite a lot of women. But older. Like, I mean, like, n- like not old, obviously, but right. like kind of, they're not teenagers they're not. at all. And that's what people never really realize. They, they were the kind of, the initial wave of them was young, but the actual like, like the kind of, yeah, they're significantly older. So what's their deal? I mean, that you would think you outgrow that kind of thing. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like a kind of, it's so specific, Twilight. I mean, it's like, and so if you feel like that's been totally catered towards you, and you have, and then also you see something, which I think that's why a lot of people feel a sense of ownership over it, because it did come from a very small thing, and it was very personal and private, I and mean, then it becomes this massive thing, and you kind of, people feel like they were on the journey. But I think like the majority of, people who went to see Twilight were just like just random people. Right, I mean, that right. gets kind of, it wasn't just all like kind of Twihards. <laughs> <laughs> One question I have is when throughout those years, and I want to, I'm going to try to approach this in a, in a way that's proper here. I mean, like, do you think that it in hindsight made your life infinitely harder and sort of fueled those people's fantasies or, you know, expectations or their issues or whatever, when you were involved with a co-star? Does that just, add fuel to the fire i don't know specifically i mean because you kind of there's plenty of series of relationships and stuff where like people just imagine anyway right like even when we weren't together the people were saying we were anyway it doesn't make any difference but like it's (laughs) kind of it's sort of still now (laughs) (laughs) they're never gonna give in they'll never accept it it definitely does change your paparazzi involvement in your life like a hundred percent 
it's just an economic thing. It's just two people in a photo, like rather than. Right. And I think anything, it's like the most relatable thing for anyone who reads a gossip magazine is like, what's the state of a relationship? Right. Like those things. Any if everyone's having the same thing, right. and so you do, that's why the, there's these constant stories of anyone who's had any kind of coupling with anybody. That, well, you've said a bunch of times that you're sort of like a homebody type person. You don't like to go out a lot. But was that the case even before all of this, or is that the result of this? No, I mean I'm not really a homebody. I mean I kind of. I'm like a bougie Hollywood guy. <laughs> no, 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 but really. I mean, in the sense, like, has did this whole side stuff that comes with all this, does it change your willingness or ability to go out and just do the things that you would have done? Yeah. I mean, I definitely had a moment where I, because I was so busy up until 25 or something, yeah. that I'd never, I never had a time to really process anything. Yeah, and you're just yeah. in the eye of the storm. And then I really had a moment at 25 where I was kind of, I'd been trying to live. The, the previous life that right. I was living and just uh, because you're so busy, you could sort of ignore what it was happening. And then I had a real moment when it kind of started to, when I, when the series was sort of ending and I'd slow down a little bit. It's like, Oh, the life you had previously has died. Mm. And like, and you're kind of, and you're just in this other was there world. One thing that hammered that home. No, I just remember kind of just feeling like I was sort of freaking out a little bit. Yeah. Like, and, and really I got Cosmopolis and that really just, it suddenly made you realize like, oh, there's like a whole point. Like, there was a point in why you started doing this in the first place. And it's like, and and now you have. Getting closer to that. Yeah. And you have a chance to do it. And like, Well, we should note that during the, I don't know, however many months they would have between each Twilight movie. What was it like four, four or something months? Mm-hmm. Roughly. So you, you know, you would be within your rights to take those hiatuses and just like lie on your couch. But it seems like throughout the entire process, you kept working on other films that were very different mm-hmm. and let's just remind people there was remember me which came out in 2010 about 9-11 there was water for elephants which came out in 2011 you're this depression era guy who who joins a circus after his parents are killed bella me in 2012 climbing the paris social ladder by by sort of playing wealthy women these are very different sorts of things why work when you didn't have to work and and would you say that you were trying to prove something to yourself to others was there some motivation for that no, I mean, I just knew after the first premiere, like, you feel there was such a weight put on it, but like, you, there was just no choice. Like, yeah. you kind of, you had to, you had to diversify very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> like, or at least otherwise, and I knew as well, it was going to be like a ton, there's five of them. Yeah. And so like, you're like, you, like, if you just waited to do five movies, I mean, that's like your whole 20s. And yeah. like, it's kind of, yeah. and also because, you know, once you're in a ro- on a roll of working, that's kind of, you know, doesn't want to sit around. Now I just want to sit around all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what were the what were the biggest preconceptions that some other filmmakers might have had of you because of Twilight? And did you, you know, when, as you were seeking other kinds of things, was that impression of all right, this is this guy, this is what he does, was that an impediment in any way? No, I mean, well, no more so than just being like tall and blonde. Right. Like, right. I mean, it's sort of like you kind of, it's the same thing. And I'd always wanted to play like kind of, you want to play character parts. And everyone's like, well, you're not really a character looking kind of person. And right. like, and so you get kind of frustrated at that. But I mean, I don't think, I mean, it was weird when Twilight people thought that that was like, that was me playing myself, which is like, I just always thought it was. You're saying the Twilight filmmakers thought that your character in that was basically you? What? Not the filmmakers, like the yeah. kind of, but other, other oh, filmmakers. The, I gotcha. like, which I never ever understood it because I was always like, what? have you never seen anything? But I guess most people don't see an interview or anything. Right. And so they're just like, they just assume like that's, oh, right. they watch and a movie. It's and so that's heavily marketed and whatever. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. 
you did work. We should know, like some of these directors uh, that did the some of these Twilight movies are, are top right. directors. Yeah, like yeah. Bill Condon and other people there. Yeah, and Chris White. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you you're doing these ones during the the hiatuses. Then Twilight is winding down, and I guess it was around then that you landed Cosmopolis, this first of two collaborations so far with David Cronenberg. How did that come about? Did he did he ever tell you what it was about you that made him think of you? No, I mean, I'd read the script a long time previously, and I loved the script, but I thought I was way too young for it. And, and yeah, and it was, it was, he, I hadn't even met him, and it was just an offer. And I couldn't, I literally couldn't believe it. When, and I remember just, I was nervous to even call back to say, <laughs> to say I'd do it. Cause I was like, I don't know. And I remember calling back and saying, like, I was like, I, like, I really like it. I really want to do it. I just don't really, I don't really get it. And he's like, that's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it was just, I mean, he's just, he's like, that's his character. Just being like, you know, you don't really need to understand it. It's fine. Well, you've said it was, a, you've called it a life-changing experience. And just to remind people, you're playing this, I guess, young billionaire who, who has a bad day where it all starts to fall apart. And just two years later, back with him. So he obviously was pleased with how it went and you were as well. And do you think, though, that having done Cosmopolis and then also later, Map the Stars with him, which goes to Cannes at the same time as the Rover. Mm-hmm. To have two in the festival in one year is a pretty mm-hmm. special thing. What changed in those two or three years about the perception of who you were, what you were capable of, what you wanted to do? I mean, it's a slow turn. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, everyone was asking even then, saying, oh, are you worried about being typecast and blah, blah, blah. So I'm, I was always like, I'm getting the jobs I want to yeah, do. Yeah. Like, for if I don't want to rock the boat, whatever is the reason I'm getting these jobs. Yeah. And like, you know, to much to a lot of people's detriment who I work with, like, I don't even care if they make money at all. Like, I'm literally, as long as I can get another one. Right. It seems like the big thing for you is the director, because we should also note, so David Michaud did The Rover, Werner Herzog did Queen of the Desert a year after that, James Gray, Lost City of Z a year after that. And now the the Softie brothers who we're coming to with, with Good Time. But is that the main consideration for you? Just people that you want to work with? Definitely at one point. I mean, I was kind of, I, I mean, obviously there were people who I loved, but at the same time, you kind of, I was aware of a credibility deficit. And so you think if, well, if, if Herzog and Anton Corbin and all these different people say, well, they're hiring me. So I was like, well, I was yeah. hoping that all these people said, well, you're going to have to shit on your heroes if you yeah. want to shit on me. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, That's great. That was kind of the... Uh, and I mean, it, it really, it, for any and all flack that you ever took for Twilight, it's only five years ago was the last one. And here we are five years later and, you know, you're in the, the best actor discussion at can. So it is a pretty nice, amazing, you know, I'm sure it doesn't feel like just like a quick turnaround for you, but def- it really does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's I mean, it's, but I knew as well, I, I knew as soon as I signed on to do a multiple sequels to something, I was like, it's going to take 10 years to go. It's, it's like, you, you figured that out. I said it to my agent. Yeah. And it took 10 years. Let's say today you could go back to the moment when you were offered, you know, yes or no, do you want to do Twilight? Knowing everything that came with that, mm-hmm. the good, the bad, and the ugly, would you say yes again? Yeah, 100%. It's all good. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's like... Well, not all good if you can't go to the, you know, if you've got crazy people yeah. or whatever. At the end of the day, it's literally, who really wants to do anything? So ultimately you weigh it and you say it was, the, it, was, it was the right move. Oh yeah, 100%. I always known it was the right move. But it's kind of... It's kind of, it's unbelievable. I mean, this, this is also, this, I've made these decisions when it wasn't like, oh, I should, did I, should I choose this one or that thing? It was like, these are the only jobs I was getting. Right, and right, like, right, and it's right. kind of, 
and I wouldn't have done any of this other stuff sure. if not for that. So let's let's come to this great movie that premiered at Cannes this year, just back in May, and then has been on the festival circuit since then, picking up all kinds of acclaim and accolades. This is Good Time, a movie by the Softy brothers, Benny and Josh. You're playing Connie, a I guess you would say a small time crook in New York. Uh, Josh was saying, describing as a r- romantic psychopath. Romantic psychopath, <laughs> relatively like present day, right? I would mm-hmm. it seems. So how did this one come about, and and were you aware? of the Softy Brothers' prior work, which really wasn't, as they call it, they've said, this is our first movie movie, but how did this all come together with you? I just randomly came across this still from from Heaven, Heaven Knows What mm-hmm. and really liked it. And it's so, I just never like anything. And so it's kind of, if you get that feeling, it's the same feeling which I got with seeing White Material, the Claire Denis movie, and yeah. I was just like, like I know, I hundred percent know I had to do it, and it's only happened to me a few times in my life, and so like I just really, really went after it. Mm-hmm. Like I've been trying up until that point, movies I would, I would do movies where the world was so self-contained, like in Cosmopolis and all these different things, stylistically, like mm-hmm. that you wouldn't necessarily be judging just a performance in that movie. You'd ha- it, like you're. Com- you should be completely taken away from reality. It's, it's it's something you have to just totally accept every facet of the world, which the which the filmmaker is creating. And I loved like when I saw Heaven Knows What and this, the seamlessness between performances in the real world and just on the street and stuff. Yeah. I was like, if I could do something like that, that's that's going to be what I want to do. And that would really require you to do what what you had said you'd wanted to do years earlier, which was to basically be a character actor, right? Yeah. You're going to not, you'd have to change your appearance. You're going to have to do some things. Yeah. And it's, all, it's all from like the kind of stupid insecurities from being young going like, oh, you're a private school boy from, from <laughs> London. And it's like, you can never do this and you can never do that. Blah, blah, blah. And obviously it's like some kind of like white privilege kind of thing. <laughs> but literally, but like, but at the same time, it's like, you know, everybody wants to be the opposite of or yeah. everybody, well, not necessarily the opposite, but like everybody doesn't like being told this is the only thing you right. can do. So I've been trying to do I, you know, the other, I think it's interesting to try and empathize with different archetypes and, and that's the whole point of acting. Yeah. And there's nothing, there's nothing about this guy that reminds anyone of anything that you'd previously done. Nothing glamorous about this guy. Mm-hmm. The, the, he's sweaty, he's kind of greasy air, he's, mm-hmm. and he's got a Queens accent and all mm-hmm. these things that one thing that Josh Softy said uh, of you recently was quote, he doesn't need money. What he's after is so much more existential. He related to Connie in that regard. He felt imprisoned and that he couldn't be free because of the Twilight thing, close quote. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Not really. Not really. Do you disagree <laughs> with that? I've always felt very free. I mean, it's yeah. literally, you just need like the – and I just always found that it's kind of – I mean, I've just been extremely lucky though. So it's kind of – I've like – basically found these jobs at a certain at certain points in my life which just suddenly really appealed to me and like and I'll try and find something which feels really different to anything I've done before and but I knew at the beginning I've, ne- I've never really felt trapped by it I've never felt like I, even when I was doing it I would do the other movies I've never felt trapped by anything and I guess <laughs> it's kind of like and I try I, I, it's a conscious decision to yeah. not be trapped by it yeah. like and not get kind of overwhelmed by it one of the things people should know is that Benny Softy, one of these two brothers who directed this, also plays your mentally challenged younger brother, Nick, in this. When you heard that he would be playing that part, which I don't think was known when you initially Mm-mm. signed on, what did you make of that? And then how did you guys develop this? I was reading about some really interesting stuff where you were having an email correspondence in character mm-hmm. that you guys were coming up with pretty detailed backstories dealing with things that we never 
see or you hear mm-hmm. about in the movie, but just talk about the the way they and you work to make this feel like such these characters feel so believable. Yeah, I mean, well, I think they wrote a lot of the script by, I mean, Josh and Ronnie, the Runstein, the co-writer, they wrote incredibly detailed backstories. And, and I was getting, I, I kind of got the, the script in piecemeal, like over a year or so, like, and then it would come with an idea and some and some photographs of images of, of, of people who the character could look like. And then there were just new stories as well about like the Richard Matt and David, David Sweat and Richard Matt. Or yeah, Richard these other guys, yeah. robbers, right? And just this kind of thing where these guys are like murderers and people would be rooting for them. It's this thing. Like, I mean, they're to, to escape and all these different right. ideas, like different kind of, and things like just different, but like executioner's song and this yeah. book called the, in the belly of the beast and all this, the kind of getting it all at the same time. But it was, I mean, I mean also these kind of detailed backstories and the letters and all this stuff, but it was all coming at once. It wasn't just like a script. I mean, you'd use all this stuff afterwards to kind of fill in the ideas. It was coming in piecemeal, yeah. which is kind of, it's a, it's a nice way of building it. But yeah, the, I've never done that much relationship backstory yeah. with, with an actor before because most of the time an actor comes in the day before. I mean, it's yeah. just impossible. Yeah. And you also, they're only cast the day before. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> well, so here, how would it work? Because technically, both Josh and then Benny, who's playing opposite you, are directors. So at the end of a take, does Benny just break a character and start directing? Or how did that work? No, I mean he would mainly stay sort of in character if he was doing if he was doing if he was doing a scene with him as as Nick, and then occasionally sort of break a little bit, but not You're really. You're saying he would direct you as Nick? Well, I mean, kind of. He like not really. Like yeah. it would be like a kind of. But when they when they were when he was not in the scene, right. he would be obviously right, directing. Right, right. Yeah, it was kind of unusual because it's, it's also the opposite of the character dynamic is the, the actor director dynamic. So it was weird. Like if Benny would tell me something, you'd just kind of be like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> this thing. It's kind of confusing. Right. But. So when this movie, I don't know if you'd seen it prior to Cannes, but when, when it, it goes there where you had, again, been with two movies before, but you go there with this and I, it feels like it was a different sort of reception. I don't know that it's, I think these are probably the best, the, the best reviews of your, of your career, right? I mean, people are, falling all over themselves about this movie. And I just wonder how you've processed all of that, including from all kinds of circles of people, some people that had previously given you a hard time, mm-hmm. people that, I mean, is it, does it feel sort of like a special moment? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's kind of, and I think also people are responding just to the kind of style of filmmaking as well. It's kind of, it's just so fast. And, like, yeah. and, it's, and also just like, I mean, you can see how Josh and Benny are as people. I mean, they can, like, it's just this stream of, like, ideas constantly. But it also, the, the, but it's not a one-way thing. They're also very good listeners as well. And so, like, so when the, you can see a movie like this where it's just so much noise and chaos and everything, but it's also extremely detailed. And, like, and, you know, people are watching it like, wow, I've never, they haven't seen something like this in ages. Because it also, because it kind of feels like there's sort of elements of throwbacky kind of stuff. But yeah. then it's, like, but then it's throwback, but then like on crack, basically. <laughs> like it's kind of it's like this, the pace of it. it just, I think the pace feels extremely contemporary yeah. as well. I think it's like, I, I think only a modern audience would really be able to, to take it. Like, cause it, now we're so ADD now. Right. right. Well, just as a last question, you know, do you see this as sort of a turning point in any way? Is it a fulfillment of, a, of an objective? What, where do you go from here? Would you do if somebody came and said, hey, we want you for another franchise, would you entertain that idea? Or are you looking for something else sort of specifically? What's the outlook at this moment? Yeah, for sure. I'm always looking for, for I mean, you look at anything, you have no idea. I mean, it's kind of, 
And my only thing, I just always think that uh, well, it's going to be the end. At any point, I've been thinking that since I started working. Right. And so, like, even yesterday, we had this screening, and there was just like, great people coming to the screening, and everybody's liking it afterwards. And I remember saying to my agent, going, like, oh, my God, is this the, is this the tipping point? <laughs> and, then, and then I realized, like, oh, I'm starting to Claire Denis movie in two weeks. That's, that's you know, it's, awesome. it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so feeling good yeah absolutely awesome well thank you so much and congratulations i i loved it so i appreciate you doing this cool thanks a lot thank you